1: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host, and here's Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. Oh, hello.
2: How are you both? Hey, uh, Evan, who's uh, who's back on the show this week?
1: Uh, this week, back on the show, uh, as he is maybe roughly every year and a half or so, is uh Ta-Nehisi Coates, who probably needs no introduction, but I love having him back because we have a kind of ongoing conversation that we can dip into and find out what he's thinking about and what he's working on. In this case, the prompt was that he guest edited the September issue of Vanity Fair. He also uh, reported and wrote the cover story, uh, and we talk a lot about that. I will say a couple of things you should know listening to this particular episode. One is that we talk about the, the different stories that are in this issue and they're not all explained what they are the names kind of uh might come at you so i'm just going to run down a few of the stories that are in the issue so you'll know what they are before you dip into this interview you should go pick up the the issue or, or check it out online it's it's got incredible pieces in it but they are Jasmine Ward, who wrote a, an essay, a very powerful essay on the death of her husband in the midst of everything that's happening this year, uh, Eve Ewing, who reported on police unions, Josie Duffy Rice, who uh, writes about the police abolition movement, Bamani Jones, who uh, has a story about college football's unpaid labor. And the cover of the magazine is a portrait of Breonna Taylor that accompanies ta story that is painted by Amy Sherald, who's a portrait artist, probably most famous for a painting of Michelle Obama that hangs in the Natural Portrait Gallery. So those are kind of some of the names that you'll hear, some of the stories that we'll be talking about. There's more stories in the issue, but those you should know. I have a second thing you should know going into the interview, which is that it came only a couple of days after the sudden death of Chadwick Boseman, uh, who, as you'll hear, was a friend of ta In fact, uh, when I saw uh, the director, Ryan Kugler's statement about uh, the death, he, he references the fact that Tanahasi and Chadwick Boseman both went to Howard, were both friends uh, with Prince Jones, who was uh, a man who was killed by police, and his death features prominently in Between the World and Me, if you've read that. So uh, that name will also uh, come up as well.
2: I'm so, uh, I'm so glad that we have him back on the show, particularly right now. Hey, I don't have a transition, but uh, if you want to start an email newsletter, do it with Mailchimp. They sponsor this show. They have for many, many years, for many, many Tanahasi Coats episodes. They have sponsored the show and we appreciate it thanks to Mailchimp. Now here's Evan with Tanahasi Coats.
1: ta welcome back to the podcast. What number is this? This is number seven, <laughs> I think. Seven? <laughs> it's crazy. I think so. it might be six. I don't know. It's crazy that I can't even remember. It used to be when we did an, a new one, I would go back and listen to the old one, uh-huh. you know, to see what we talked about before, make sure I don't repeat myself. And uh, I just can't do it anymore. I can't listen to six, seven hours worth of ready. audio. <laughs> it's too much preparation. So I just got to go off my... Uh, uh, my memories. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. Um I want to say I feel very fortunate. I feel honored, really, that you are willing to have this conversation because I know you recently lost a friend, Chadwick Boseman, who is, you know, the world is experiencing that loss, but I know you're experiencing it in a different way. So thank you for taking the time to do this, even despite that.
2: No, it's okay. I mean, we had committed before, and um it's an experience to... um meet somebody and, and you know I don't want to overstate this you know because Chad was like a really private dude yeah and I think whenever you have people who are up at a certain level there's a certain currency that people try to deal in in you know uh, overstating their proximity so you know this wasn't a cat who I you know talk to every day or anything but you know we did know each other we did um, you know pretty much in, in the same circle you know this is a guy I met Jesus, 1997, 98, uh, when um, the students in the fine arts uh, building decided to uh, take over the administration building at Howard to prevent, as Chad called it, the absorbing of the fine arts college into the broader liberal arts uh, school and thus turn basically turn fine arts into a program as opposed to, you know, an independent which was crazy because so much of what, you know, how it's calling card is, you know, turning out, you know, artists from Donny Hathaway to to Puffy to Tony Morrison, you know, just this long history. And so it, it seemed crazy. Anyway, him and a, you know, another close friend of mine basically led that takeover and I covered it for the Hilltop for the student newspaper. <laughs> You know, so I'm like at the beginning of, of, of my career, I probably have been working for, you know, David Carr, who's been mentioned several times, you know, in other podcasts week, that we've done for, you know, a couple of years at that point, maybe a year, two years, something like that. But anyway, I was coming in for the student newspaper and I say all that to say to watch him, you know, on this arc, to see him in, you know, some of the, you know, the student plays at Howard. He was always such a serious, serious artist and intense and probably like the dude I would least be likely to pick, to become, you know, major, you know, Hollywood leading man. Mm. Not because he lacked the talent, but he was so serious. I mean, just dead, dead, dead serious about his art. And, And, you know, he really, really didn't play and didn't have time, you know, for shenanigans. And so just to watch his ascent, I mean, it's one of those, you know, really, really rare cases. I know there's so much in the world that makes people feel like, you know, taking shortcuts and, you know, messing around and, and Chad was like that rare case that did it on principle and basically, you know, uh, did it on hard work. You know, um, I know when people pass, you know, folks are like, they say this person, you know, never did any wrong or, you know, et cetera. And that's not what I'm saying, but I, I was privileged to watch, you know, his rise as an artist.
1: I went back and watched the on stage interview you did with him at the Apollo. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the things you said there was you sort of started off by saying, cause it was about Black Panther, obviously. and. And you said something like, I didn't know that I needed this movie until I watched it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder how much of that connected with him being in that role or just.
2: Uh... Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, I, that was part of it. You know what I mean? Chad always had like this kind of, you know, otherworldly regalness, you know, uh, uh, about himself. When he got cast, it's not like I was like, oh, he clearly can't do this. You know what I mean? As I said, it was, you know, unexpected that, you know, he would be on this rise like this. I guess I I more doubted (laughs) the wisdom of Hollywood. (laughs) And so I think like, you know, and then by that point, or somewhere around that point, like I started writing a comic book. And so it was like crazy, you know, um, that, you know, he would be there and I would be, you know, writing a comic book. And then i was just so proud of that dude. Just so proud, you know? And, And even that, at that moment, That he agreed to do that conversation. I mean, you're talking about you are headlining a billion dollar film. Again, I knew that they were, you know, promoting that film and, you know, how exhausting because I think this was after they had gone on this global tour to promote. I knew Mm -hmm. how exhausting that was that after they had done that grueling tour that he would just sit there. And you have to remember what we know now is he was diagnosed by then. Yeah. Yeah. So he's been diagnosed with, with cancer. You know what I mean? And he sits up on that stage. And, you know, I remember we had a pre-call and, you know, his reps were very, very insistent, you know, about that. You know, we keep the time, you know, limited, da 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 And I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm, good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good with that. We got on the stage. and He has so much to say. <laughs> And you can tell him. Mean, you go back and look at the interview, and he just has so much to say. And I think there was at some point there's a kid who has a Black Panther mask who comes up on stage and wants to get, you know, Chad and Chad signs it, yeah. you know, he was very conscious about what that meant and what, what that moment meant. And it is, um, I just, man, it is it is haunting to be sitting here talking to you about this in, in the past tense. Yeah. He has so many like just, just enviable qualities, you know, for that that relatively brief moment, you know, when he really was, you know, king, you couldn't have picked a better person to, to, to carry it.
1: Yeah, so I don't want to dwell on this or make you dwell on it, but I, one other thing that just struck me was, you know, I saw Ryan Kugler's statement, which was very, very moving, and, you know, he referenced that there was this connection. You were doing the comic, you mm-hmm. know, when he was casting the part, and he met Chadwick Boseman, and they, they talked about it, and also that he was friends with... Prince Jones, which, you know, for people who may not have read Between the World and Me, you know, that he was a friend who who was killed by the police. And I, and I feel like it just all kind of connects up in a way that I found it somehow even more moving that you guys were both friends with Prince Jones and it ties into yeah. everything that's happening in the world
2: I right actually, now. I actually didn't know that, but it, it makes sense because, you know, even within how, I mean, you're talking about like 10,000 kids, right? So within that, there is going to be a subgroup of kids who are what we can no longer use in any sort of earnest way. But the term would be woke. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, we would have considered ourselves conscious back and that's the term, you know, we, we would have used. And so that, there was a you know, relatively small group. Um, Chad was a year behind me. Prince was a year in front of me. And so like we all were on campus at the same time and in the same milieu and in the, in the same area and um yeah that that certainly you know very much you know lines up
1: well the original reason you know that i got in touch to talk to you again was this vanity fair that you guest edited and i feel like you know there's a lot of mourning within those pieces that's right and then jasmine ward's i don't know what's more than a gut punch it's like a punch in the face you yeah know? It's a lot. So I kind of want, want to take you through that, doing that, but I, I kind of want to go back a little bit because I'm interested, after all these years of writing about these things, you know, when you heard about George Floyd, do you remember that moment and was it, a, did it feel like a significant moment or did it feel like, here we go again, this is just like every other time?
2: I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but none of them feel particularly significant. And I'm talking about personally, I'm not saying they aren't significant and I'm not saying, you know, the life loss. But um, I look at it this way. It's like um, in this country, we have fire hazards. And when you have fire hazards, ever so often there's going to be a fire. And that's basically, you know, what these killings are, they're fires. And so, you know, we have (laughs) we have the necessary conditions For this sort of thing to happen. And I must stress and emphasize it will keep happening. It will keep happening. When I was at the Atlantic, Jim Fallows, and maybe he still does this, but every time there was a mass shooting, he used to stress, and this necessarily will not be the last because the conditions are there. The conditions are such that they dictate that this has to happen. I can't tell you when, can't tell you how, can't tell you who, but it will happen it will happen and um you know in my writing i think i you know i've connected this a lot with global warming and, and that that sort of thing and i think it's sort of like that like it's like an inability to acknowledge the basic science that you have a setup that you know necessitates that at random moments this will happen
1: and when things started sort of spiraling up in terms of the protests and the voices around it getting louder and people getting in the streets did you immediately think I want to write about this. I want to cover this yes. in some way.
2: Yes, and I was frustrated because this is still COVID. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go out. I mean, one night, <laughs> one night, God, this must've been like the week George Floyd got killed or maybe the following, but there was a huge rally at Union Square. And then there's one out at the Barkley Center and, I, and I'm telling my wife, I gotta get out of here. I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. She says, okay, so I get up there you know, to Union Square and it's kind of you know filtering down. I'm like, fuck this man, I'm going to the Barkley Center. And I got on the train, which is a little less safe than it is now. And I got on the train, headed straight out to Barkley Center. I texted her, she said, yo, you gotta get off the train. Can't do this. You absolutely cannot do this. So came home, took off my clothes, showered it. You know what I mean? And so I was sitting around seething. And if she was here, she would tell you like what I was saying the whole time was like, this is happening, and I am not doing my job. Like I'm just sitting here watching. You know what I mean? And actually, I was talking to Chris and I was like, you know, my editor, Chris Jackson. And I was like, maybe I need to write another short book or something like what? Like, I can't just sit here. And he said, well, do you know what it is? And maybe I kind of sketched it out a little bit, but it wasn't quite formulated. And so I said, you know what? I really feel like I got to get down to Louisville. And by that point, you know, it was like, look, people, other people are actually out here risking it. And so it's wrong for me to just sort of sit here and, and not risk it. So woof. Got on a flight down to Louisville. Flight was relatively empty. Might have been five other people on the flight. The airports were totally, totally deserted. You know, got down there. And um, this is terrible. But like any decent reporter, you always fear missing it. And I got there and I was like, I missed it. <laughs> you know, I missed the story, it already happened. But I think I was up in my hotel and like, I was staying downtown and I hadn't been checked in more than two, three hours where I, you know, can hear them mm. down in the street. Say her name, Brianna Taylor. Say her name, Brianna Taylor. I got my stuff, ran right out. And it's this huge caravan of people coming through downtown, which is boarded up, by the way. Everything's boarded up. And I just took my camera and just followed them. And then the next day, I went to see um, Brianna's mother, Tamika Palmer.
1: How did you make that contact originally? I
2: got Crump's number.
1: That's a law- the lawyer.
2: Yeah, Benjamin Crump. And then he connected with the local lawyer down there. And, you know, I, I told her, I said, listen, you know, I feel deeply connected to this. You know, I, I had, um, you know, a friend, you know, who, who was killed, you know, not the same circumstances, but kind of similar. And I wrote about it. I wrote this, you know, book between the world and me. Um, I've interviewed, you know, other folks who've dealt with this. I think I might have mentioned Lucy McBath, who I interviewed, you know, is in Congress now. And I said, I just want to talk. I just want to talk. And she said, okay. So went down there, you know, talked to her mom, who was at that point just being inundated with interviews. And I must have been one of a battery that day. And. Mm. You know, there's a lot of, you know, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. I mean, she's doing the best she could. I'm not criticizing her. You know what I mean? But there's a lot of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, right? And then I asked her how she found out Brianna, you know, had been killed. And it was like a light switch went off and she just narrated in perfect, like, detail. Like, everything. Like she remembered everything clearly. And she almost, like, went on a monologue. It's the opening part of that piece, And I I could just see it. And she was so clear. And what came out in the clarity was like how the police had treated her afterwards. It wasn't even like the, because she didn't know at the time what had happened. But their behavior afterwards was to me the most telling, like how they they strung her along. And I guess at that point, I thought, well, I'm going to write something that'll, you know, talk about these protests and I'll use the protest as background. And I'll, you know what I mean? I'll pull it all together and I'll tell you, here's what this means. And I just felt like nothing I can say will ever, ever come close to this woman telling you exactly what happened. Like, I just I can't do better than that. I can't. I'm not going to beat that. I don't have an analysis that's going to be better than the very specific detail that she gives you of what happened. You know, we're always doing this, you know, in our nonfiction, right? Like, you, you know this very well. We're trying to get you. The details right and for a long time i've kind of been obsessed with people's voices and i've wondered why we don't as journalists sometimes just hand the mic to the subject when you have somebody like that just let them talk yeah and let them go let them go and i came from that and i was like man i just kind of want to let her go like i don't i don't really want to interject myself so so i was working with vanity fair on another story that just didn't come to be and it was supposed to be the September cover, actually. So we have a September cover. And they were like, is anybody else you want to write about? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I worked on this little book, but I don't really have anything. And Claire Holworth, who is, uh, I believe, the executive editor, I think, um, at, at Vanity Fair, she said, you know, it would be really cool if it was just you and you just guest edited. And I said, is that a thing y'all would do? And she said, I don't know. Let me talk to Radika. <laughs> she went and talked to Radika, and I talked to you know Chris, and I said, "Is this even a thing I should be thinking about doing?" He was like, "Yeah, it's a great idea." And Radika was like, "Yeah, I'm into it." Got on a Zoom call um, the next day, and at this point, we've started calling people. Like I've started calling people, asking them, you know, to, to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, I called Jasmine, which was oof hard.
1: Can you say a little bit about her story? I, I referenced it, but can you? Yeah, can you...
2: sure. Jasmine's Jasmine's husband passed, I want to say in January or so. And I knew her husband had passed, you know, and I had some understanding of what had happened. And I had sent her, you know, um, some flowers. So we had a little communication. I just called her and I didn't ask her to write about her husband. I called her and I said, listen, um, you know, we're going to try to do this thing. And, um, you know, I said something to the effect I feel like it would be incomplete without you. <laughs> You know, I really, you know, I don't want to stress you. I know you got a lot going on right now, but if you have anything at all to say, you know, it would be great if you did. And she said, sure, sure, I'll do it. And Jasmine, I believe, was the first person to file.
1: So when you say do this thing, what's in your mind? What's this thing?
2: Nothing. I mean, like, there are a couple people in that issue, Jasmine being one, Kiese Layman being another, who was just kind of like, so, like, when we conceived of this, there was like, okay, certain things we want, like, reported. Like, what we didn't want was like takes, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we did not want like a bunch of takes on like COVID and, you know, police. Like we didn't want people opining. And so like, there were some things that we really knew we wanted reported out. You know, some of them you know, came to fruition, some did not. There were other things that we wanted somebody to address, but I would argue that even a piece like Jasmine's or a piece like Kiese, even though it's not quote unquote reported, it's actually not a take because they are pulling from like the story is themselves, right? Like it's, it's like self journalism, if that makes any sense at all. But the kind of detail that you're trying to achieve when you actually are doing reporting is actually there. So I, I would argue even in, you know, the, the personal essay form, which gets a, a bad rap, but it gets a bad rap because people do it poorly, you know, um, and don't subject it to the kind of, you know, rigor that Jasmine and Kiese subjected it to. So. No, I just, I felt like, do you have anything? Is this something you're aching to say? Not, I want you to go do, I think her and Kihei were the only ones like that. Where it was like, I have no idea what these guys were. I I will say this. Everyone who I approached had to be able to write. Like Like everyone in there, you know what I mean? I was thinking, look, I want voice, I want voice, I want voice. Carl used to say this thing and I don't know how true it is, but he had this theory when he was editing. That you can't actually teach writing, but you can make somebody go report. I don't know how true that is. I think some people stop when they should keep going. I think some people don't ask the second and third question. And, you know, you really don't have time to force them to do that. And he also was dealing with, with much younger people. But I did have this kind of prerequisite that, like, all of the writing in here, at least, you know, there has to be the possibility of it being, you know, top-notch quality. And then some people need to make some calls. Yeah. So, you know, some people need to make squads. and that was natural for, for you know somebody like you know Bomani. Eve, once she got into it, she was you know really you know great at you know doing it with, with the union piece. Eve um, and Bomani E-viewing. Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and then you got Josie Duffy Rice. Josie. Also yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing you know, she's a, a beautiful piece.
2: writer, and you know, really, really pushed herself, you know, on something that is actually quite complicated and not easy to explain, but. I had thought, you know, the fact that she's a beautiful writer and the fact that she's a lawyer, like, she would have the ability to at least, you know, try to, you know, untangle this thing that, you know, people look at and don't always quite get. And then I, you know, had to figure out what I was going to do, you know, with Brianna. And um, I talked to Radika about this idea. I talked to Chris about the idea. It became clear that I wasn't going to, you know, get a book of any quality done that fast. And so I, um... I called her mom and I called a lawyer and I said, listen, um, this is what I envision. You know, I just, you know, want you to talk. I just, you want to talk to you like, you know, like four or five times for like an hour. If you sit with me for four or five times, not sit with me, but if you can get on the phone four or five times, this is somebody that's, you know, working a regular job. Yeah. I would appreciate it. And, you know, we're going to send, the, you know, this incredible photographer down there, uh, Latoya Ruby Frazier, um, to do the photography and we'll have um, Amy Cheryl, you know, is gonna, you know, paint. Brianna and Amy's only painted one person and that was the first lady. And, you know, um, I don't know how impressed she was by any of this, but she said she'd do it. She said she'd do it. And I just called her up, man. I called her up over the course of a, a few days. And for an hour we would sit, you know, and we would talk about her and talk about her daughter. And my aim was if I could ever get anything as crystal clear as her narrating that night, her daughter died. I I thought I would, you know, be somewhere really, really, really strong and really good. And the thing that makes that piece for me is like her talking about like the motorcycle club. Yeah. You know what I mean? Her talking about like cars and all of the little things and teaching Brianna how to ride. Like those little details. Because what I was telling you earlier was the math dictates that this will happen again, again, again. And I feel like It's a job of journalism to lift this stuff out of math. You know what I mean? And show that that actually is significant to these people's lives. And you could only get that if she would go through in painstaking detail about what was lost. And I just, um, I'm filled with like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. She didn't have to do that.
1: How did you make the decision? I mean, I could see taking that approach and it being just about Brianna, but you also, you take it back to her mom growing up and sort right. of where it all came from. And what were you trying to say in in pulling back in that way?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I was, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, when, when you profile somebody, you ask them questions about their life, right? Like you do this kind of biographical work. And it was just interesting to me. It was just like, her life was really interesting to me. Yeah. And I thought it might be interesting to the reader, you know, um, her relationship with her mom, her relationship with her father, the conditions under which, you know, Brianna was born. And I wanted that to be known. You know, I asked her, how'd you come to uh, Louisville? And we just walked it back. Well, what was Grand Rapids like? What were you, what were you trying to leave behind? What did you see? What was your home life like? You know, um, how old were you when Brianna was born? And it just, it, it all just came together.
1: And it also, I mean, it put me in mind of, uh, and I, I don't mean to keep circling back to this, but when you write about Prince Jones in mm-hmm. Between the World and Me, towards the end, there's a part where you sit down with his mom, you go mm-hmm. see her. I mean, it's very similar. Like that it part is. of the book feels like an as told to right. almost story. Right. And partly just made me think, what does it do to you? What does it make you feel to sit down with now on multiple occasions, people, and basically say, I want you to tell me in the greatest detail possible the worst thing that's ever happened to you. That's
2: right. That's right. Well, for me personally, it's enraging. I am... So on the one hand, I'm always amazed that they'll do it. On the other hand, I'm not. Because what people most want, I think, and I I guess if I were in this position, I would be the same way. They don't want their children to be forgotten. That, to me... Probably would be a kind of hell, you know. What I mean, to have your your child killed in this way, and then no one remembers. I I don't know. It's 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 horrid, you know. It really, really is horrid. And so, um, I don't know. I will tell you this. I would like to do more of that, man. I you know uh, I have said this. Before, I I kind of made my bones as this kind of essayist or whatever, but. And I, I like doing that. I obviously like doing that writing, but watching people outline the details of their life, I, it just fascinates me. And hearing it in their own rhythm, and their own cadence, and their own voice, a lot of times I just find that so much more interesting than like my interpretation of it. I was watching CNN about a month ago and there was a, a young lady And she had had a double lung transplant. She had survived COVID. She's like first double lung transplant or something like that. Hmm. And she was being interviewed about it and she was just going in detail after detail after detail about what had happened. And the feeling, which I would describe somewhere between like rage and sadness was just in, I mean, she was kind of seething about it, right? You know, this had happened. And the journalist kept like, <laughs> like interrupting. And I was like, shut up, let her talk. Just let her talk, <laughs> let her go. And I, I recognize probably, you know, it's the wrong form, right? Like you're on news and you only have a certain amount of time. But I was like, I could just listen to this person talk about this and go. I don't know like why we don't, I don't know why we don't do more of that.
1: Do you feel like you're, I mean, we've talked about this in different ways that, you know, the success of the book in some spaces makes your presence become a thing.
2: It's obscuring.
1: Yeah. But it feels like there are also as many people as read that book. uh, There's lots of people who didn't. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, did you find in this, in this situation that it felt like you were kind of, changing the energy of the space by... No, not in this case.
2: Not in this case. I don't know if Tamika had ever heard of me. You know what I mean? So, you know, sometimes in public, it's a problem. Like, if you're trying to get a scene, it's a problem. It really was not in Louisville. I was masked up and, you know what I mean? Nobody was paying any attention to me at all. Yeah, Um, I saw
1: you posted one photo on Instagram from a protest and I thought... I hope he's working
2: on something. Yeah, that was when I was in Louisville. Yeah. That yeah. Was when I, yeah, I was. And people were like... And you know, with the hardest hot, the part, you know what the hardest part is? Even before that, people being like, where are you? <laughs> where are you? This thing is going on and you're not saying anything. Where are you? <laughs> and obviously you can't tell them, but the other part of it is like, anything I would say, it takes so much time. It takes time. And... You can't respond to every little stupid, sometimes not stupid, but you cannot respond to every little thing that's happening every day, and then do something that is, you haven't seen the print magazine yet? No, I haven't
1: seen the print one yet, no.
2: I mean, I I felt like it's a beautiful object. I really feel like it's a beautiful object, and it takes so much time to do that. You know, uh, and I'm not just saying on my part, but on the part of so many people. And so, Here I am, A, trying to, you know, edit a couple of pieces that I edited, trying to, you know, take the the transcripts, you know, from Tamika and, you know, pull them into something, rereading the actual essays and pieces that have been contributed, looking at the art, you know what I mean? And trying to, you know, figure out, along with, you know, Radika obviously, you know, what this is and what this means and are we gonna be okay? And some things are not quite working out. And there's this pressure to, like, say something. You know what I mean? Say something. The world's, you know, burning. Say something. But I don't know. I try to I try to stay where I've been or where I at least have tried to be, you know, for most of my career. And that is that, you know, good things, you know, this is long form. Good things take time. You know, it takes time. You got to let things cook. You got to let it simmer. You can't, you know, instabate, you know, something like this.
1: What was it like being on the editing side of it? Had you done that before?
2: Oh, no, not like this. Not like this. It was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And it wasn't hard cuz the writers weren't, you know, good. You know, it was hard because you know, um in the cases of the, of the pieces I edited, the people were trying to do things that were really really complicated. And you can't write it. Like you can't, you know, go in and all right, I'm a write. I learned this from Chris, what you do is you write in spaces, you say something like this, but yeah. you do it, you know what yeah. I mean? Not, you know, this is not the language. This is, you know what I mean? How I might would do it, but this is the idea, you know? And being able to do that and making sure that you're present for them. You know what I mean? So if you're tired, don't go in and, you know, do any editing, wait, wait to, you know, give them, you know, your best self. But I was blessed. I, you know, the writers I worked with were, you know, extremely, extremely hardworking. And, you know, really diligent and, you know, just did a great job. There's no prima donnas in this crowd? Not a single one. No. That's heartening. No, 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 no. not in this moment. It was a joy to, to work with actual people was a joy because writing is so lonely. Yeah. So no, not at all.
1: So then there's this question of sort of like what the role of magazines are in this world. And I want to get at that a little bit, but also I want to, there was a, a kind of criticism that came across my timeline. I, I don't think I'm the person to like represent this criticism, mm-hmm. but it came through some people that I respect that people were concerned that even the cover, which is beautiful, that there was something about it that was sort of aesthetizing death or mm-hmm. this person. And I think it was mixed up in the memes about Breonna Taylor that did right. get sort of very uncomfortable the way people were treating it. And, I wonder if that criticism came to you or what you thought about sort of, obviously you're making this person's life beautiful in the way it should be. She was a beautiful person, but that there's potentially a downside to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I saw a piece in Slate, you know, basically articulating something like that. Um, there was a piece in Washington Post sort of, you know, articulating something like that. Let me start by saying my, my greatest concern was her mom and, and her family. I wanted them to feel like their daughter was respected and their experience was respected. So that was like probably the first thing. I did it at Vanity Fair for a reason. I can't say I would have done this somewhere else. I believe Radika over the past year has put, not including Brianna, she's put Viola Davis, Janelle Lapita and Nyong'o, you know, so you, you're talking before we got to Brianna, you're talking three magazine covers, you know, with black women in, in a year. And has endured her share of criticism for trying to diversify. Mm-hmm. So she was it's not like, hey, let me get Tanahasi. <laughs> you know what I mean, to whitewash, you know, what I've been doing. It's like I've been trying to do something already. So I chose like that partnership was thought out. Mm-hmm. Now, look, there, there, I guess there's a world where you can say, you know, because I saw, you know, one of the things was, well, you know, if Brianna hadn't have been killed, would she be on the cover of, of Vanity Fair? But The answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. And I think that's generally true of, you know, the genre that Vanity Fair is in. You know, is there going to be a non-famous, you know, black woman who's not a celebrity? on the cover of Vanity Fair? The answer's almost, you know, who hasn't been killed? The answer is almost certainly no. You know what I mean? And if so, it's probably going to be a newsworthy thing. But the reason why that's the answer is the convention of the form. There are very few magazines that put people on the cover who are not, you know, of some, you know, note or, or fame or celebrity or, or what have you. Now, you can question the form. Like, maybe there's some sort of, well, should Vanity Fair exist? Should any of these magazines exist at all? Mm -hmm. That's a different, you know, sort of question. But in terms of this issue, like she wasn't going to be the first black woman on the cover this year. And that was important. You know, I think, you know, Radhika has been trying to build a very different Vanity Fair. But the more substantive thing is that the journalism inside be of weight and quality so that it wasn't just a cover with, you know, Rihanna, but that, she be representative of something deeper that was actually happening. So I, I don't know, man. I don't I don't know if people look at the cover and just decide that they're not you know gonna read what's inside. I don't know if it's that you know people aren't you know really aware of you know the time that was spent with, with her mom. I don't I don't I mean, like you're kind of caught, right? You know, because on the one hand it's like we are ignoring these you know sort of violent crimes committed by the police when the victims are Black women. Okay, I hear you. So what I know to do is to bring my craft and the craft of, you know, some of the people who i had, you know, the pleasure of crossing paths with, some who i have not, but who I, I really respect, and try to bring them at the highest possible level to make sure that this one isn't forgotten. I'm not speaking to the memes, you know what I mean? I'm not speaking to, you know, some of the other crazy stuff I've seen. What I will say is having experienced criticism <laughs> on the other side of this, from the other direction, you know, uh, with, between the world and me, you know, of, okay, well, we're not actually paying, you know, enough attention to the experience of black women is not so much that the concern is invalid. You know, it is, you know, certainly valid. You know, the, the question of, you know, people exploiting her image is valid, You know, a question of whose stories that, you know, we tell and don't tell is valid. But at the end of the day, it's the work. You know, it's the work. And having had, you know, my share of takes written about, you know, my own work, one thing that I've settled into is not that, like, critique isn't important, but that time is really the judge, man. And... I bled onto the page, you know, for Between the World and Me. And, um, you know, book's still around. And my really, really hope is after so many people bleeding onto the page for this issue of Vanity Fair, after Jasmine bled onto the page, Amy bleeding on the page, Eve, you know what I mean, just, you know, racking herself, you know, over this question of, you know, unions and, you know, labor. Jason just exposing himself. Our artists, you know, just working so hard, our photographers, all those you know, young black photographers we got, you know, come out and be a part of this. My hope is that, you know, in the same way it'll it'll endure the test of time. That's what we were, you know, ultimately you know trying to do. So I I understand the concern about people commodifying her image, but I'm hoping that you know the work actually shows it to, you know, be not a commodification.
1: What's your opinion about the, I guess, quote unquote, reckoning that's happening in in media right now around opportunity inclusion and magazines have been wrapped up in that. What's been, have you been following that closely or?
2: Yeah, I have, I mean, I've had, you know, obviously, you know, I'm friends with James Bennett. So, you know, I mean, I saw that.
1: Uh, I guess from Atlantic, huh? Yeah.
2: Yeah, from Atlanta, I mean, he's got to hire me. And so he was very much responsible for, you know, any, you know, sort of success that I've had since then. So yeah. Definitely at Condé, I was, you know, obviously very well aware. And again, as I, you know, alluded to, I was very well aware of um, how some of the work Radhika has done has been regarded. I, you know, agreed to go on the masthead, you know, for Vanity Fair, and she asked, and I, you know, I had to think about it for, you know, a second because I had, you know, left the masthead at the Atlantic, and I did it. I, you know, what I told her was, what I'm trying to do is, I'm, <laughs> I'm here for you. Maybe even more than Vanity Fair. You know, I'm, I'm signing up for the fight that you're waging. I see you. I see what you're doing. And I appreciate it. Um, and I want to be associated with it. I think one of the things is like uh, people don't realize and I, we must have covered this before, Evan, but I'm going to go back to it because I guess as well how white like magazines, particularly in media at large, were. And I think like one of the things that happens is there is a vocabulary. There are things that you can say, ways that you can be, when there are no black people around and they really don't have any power and no brown people around and they really don't have any power and no Asian Americans around and they don't have any power and really no, you know, to some extent no no white women. There are things that you can just get that you can just get away with, apparently. And what happened before was like somebody like myself, you know, at the moment that I decided, you know, I wanted to be interested, you know, in this. And so I'm I'm reading the New Republic and, you know, New Republic can just casually say, yeah, you know, your intellect is up for debate. Do you have stupid genes? I mean, it's not not how it was said, but, you know, and and we can have that debate. We're free to have that debate. And I, I think on one side, like there are people who say, well, you know, free speech is going away, then no, you know, you, we can't you know debate things anymore. But that's bullshit. There were always things you couldn't debate. If I said, you know, hey, you know, um, I think there's some genetic evidence that Jews are really good with money. You know what I mean? You can't have that debate, and you shouldn't. What the fuck yeah. was that? Like, what is wrong? Like, we would look at you like, what the hell is wrong with you? As we should, as we should. And so, what is happening now is, you know, just to use that that example. Black folks who are journalists are saying, listen, this, this tradition of questioning you know, the intellect of black folks, it does not come you know, out of nowhere. It is associated with some of the most disreputable and dehumanizing and terrible things that have been committed in this country's history. And we shouldn't live here. We should this is out of the realms of, of, of debate now. Everybody draws lines, everybody, you know, draws fences and and so it's not a mistake and I'm, I'm mentioning this because it's on my mind now. You know, it was a, a Times column on, on Andrew Sullivan.
1: Yeah, that name checked you, Ben Smith. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah it did.
1: I, th- I wanted to go back to that because, you know, that's what you're talking about, I assume right. is, you know, running an excerpt of the bell curve in, in the New Republic and that was Andrew Sullivan. But on top of that, you were then his colleague. So- I was. And so- like what happened in that time? I mean, you did have like online debates with him, mm-hmm. but the whole time, are you thinking, how could this guy be my colleague?
2: How, no, how does he I look understand. at me? No, I my colleague. <laughs> I did. No, I mean in, I a, mean, a, in a moral a, here's sense. Here's the difference. Here's the difference. I'll tell you what the difference is. You know, um, my buddy Van Newkirk, who's at the uh, uh, Atlantic now, he sent me a photo and the photo was maybe a month or two before I left. Maybe a little longer, but not, not too long before I left. And in it, Jesus, there might be 13 people of color, man. Like, it's a lot for the Atlantic, you know, for a very small operation. And basically, there had been a meeting that day, the meeting that actually got leaked. And we all went out, you know, I thought it was, you know, good to meet with the writers of color there. And we all went out, you know, together, had had pizza and just talked. And I got there, I was the only one when I first got there. You understand? Like, when I'm I'm debating, it's only me. It's only me. And, you know, while, you know, obviously, I had conversations with people about diversity, about, you know, they needing to be, you know, more... You know, black people like that was a conversation, you know, constantly. But it really it's not it's very different than when you have a number of black people or brown people, or people of color in your newsroom who are considered critical and crucial. I was individually. I definitely was. While I was at The Atlantic, you know, I I definitely it was no point in which I didn't I felt unimportant, you know, or anything like that. But I was only one. I was only one. And, you know, this was a period where I guess maybe Jelani was at the New Yorker. The New Yorker always, at least at that time, did better than us. So they probably had more. But it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot. You know, Vanity Fair really didn't have at that point Black writers, GQ, etc. It just wasn't a lot. And so I felt like I had to answer them. You know, I felt like I didn't really have the luxury of letting it lie. And also, God, this is horrible, but... And I guess this is all out there because that transcript got leaked. But I said, it's like like my standards were like really low in terms of what to expect out of my white colleagues. Mm. You know, and what you do is you kind of like divorce yourself from it. Like you don't really have. I to think this guy doesn't realize how stupid he sounds. Like he just he really doesn't. Re- and OK, all right, cool. And, you know, to be perfectly fair, you know, this is somebody who, you know, and Andrew, who really had, you know, particularly in terms of blogging, you know, I mean, had a real influence, you know, about how I wrote. So I don't want to, you know, act like that didn't happen and, you know, was capable of, you know, not just intelligence, but, you know, real compassion, you know, and empathy in his writing. But from what I can tell, you know what I mean, is a racist and that's just, you know, what it is. And I say that because. And this was in the piece, On the one hand, you want to have this conversation about black intelligence and intellect and and race. And your objection to the 1619 project is that they haven't scientifically proved that black men have bigger dicks. That's your response. I mean, that's classic. That's like those are like classic stereotypes. You know what I mean? Like you can't like. So at that point, what you say is I did certain things I can't debate anymore. Like, I can't sit down and debate with you whether this is racist. I won't. I won't. I won't. Toni Morrison was great about this because she, you know, in one of her interviews, she, she talks about how, like, you, you go insane, like doing this, debating your own humanity with other people and you end up not doing the work that you really, really want to do, that's really actually interesting to you, you end up not asking the questions that you actually have no answers to. Hmm. Because you're trying to prove something to somebody who fundamentally don't think you're human. Because here's the thing, racism requires no intellect. You can just be stupid. You You can, so Linda Villarosa has to go and research and do this thorough article on what it means that there's this long history of racism in medicine. She has to do all the work, go through fact checking. Andrew can, by his own admission, get drunk and send her a racist joke. And that's fine. And that's fine. And then people on Twitter, you know, who are actual journalists, like my friend Nicole, had to go back and forth with him about this. Nicole's gifted. Like, what? what the fuck? Like, why are we spending energy on this? Linda's in that thread, Adam Sir was in that thread, Nicole's in that thread. These are people who are, you know, certifiable geniuses, you know, as far as I'm concerned. As great, great journalists. And they're debating with a dude who literally is sending dick jokes. <laughs> and so, like, if I'm in that, if I'm in that world, I can't do Vanity Fair.
1: Yeah. You
2: understand what I'm saying? Like, I don't have time to actually, I don't have the time and the mental energy to do the big thing. Great. To do the thing that, that I care about. And so, like, um, I have found that you have to be, like, extra careful about what arguments you enter into and, and what you do not. Um, when somebody thinks that they should be free to debate something like that. I mean, I, again, I don't really see much difference, you know, than if I, you know, come up and say, well, you know, um I don't know, we're, we're going to debate whether the Irish have a violence gene. Let's do that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like yeah. it's just, it, it's like, it's insanity. And if you spend your time doing that, I mean, if it's one thing, one thing I draw from Chad's passing is don't waste your time. And he did. I mean, his dude is diagnosed and he's working, working, working. Chad ain't sitting here debating on Twitter with people about, you know what I mean? His humanity, he's going to go do the work. And so um, I have really had to try to um, make sure that I am exercising some discipline over myself, that I'm doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing that captures my imagination that, you know what I mean, the questions that I actually really, really want answered and not, you know, engaging in high class privilege trolling by people.
1: All right, well, I'll let you go. All right. I wish it were some other time when we could do the normal thing of now we go get a beer and we talk about the real shit
2: I know man maybe in like a year or two or something I have no (laughs) idea as soon as we get vaccinated and you know here I'm gonna cut this off
1: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks again to Ta-Nehisi for taking the time to come on the show this week. Also, a special thanks to Rachel Jank and Octavia Ridout for helping make this episode possible. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Julianne Parker. And our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. Thanks. We'll see you next week.